At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. One of the best things that was ever said to me was by a teammate of mine that I played college ball with, uh, summer ball with. And he was like, he, he told me, he said, you are the most colorful dude ever met and he said I really hope you get to the big because if you don't unfortunately you're just going to be a clown welcome into another episode of baseball America's from phenom to the farm I'm your host Kyle Banduho Today we're joined by a man who really needs no introduction to baseball fans. He threw the 19th perfect game in MLB history and has as much personality as pretty much anyone on the planet, former A's left-hander Dallas Braden. Back-to-back perfect games on the show, uh, along with last episode, Philip Umber. Didn't plan on that, but uh, pretty pretty cool to say the least. I was thrilled to have Dallas on to, to talk about really everything that led up to that perfect game, which he threw on Mother's Day 2010. Uh, why his only option out of high school was junior college, despite being drafted. Uh, playing in his hometown while in the minors, everyone who knows Dallas knows that, you know how much he rides for Stockton, California, and he, he played there in high A. We talk about his vigorous multi-iPad study sessions to prepare for a start in the big leagues and how he mentally handled his arm health kind of taking away his career in the big leagues. I could have pulled 15 different moments from this one for the intro. I couldn't be a bigger fan of talking baseball with Dallas Braden. Very glad he stopped by. I hope everyone enjoys the show. Uh, episodes of Phenom of the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And go check out past interviews. We're over 50 now. They're all pretty much evergreen. A lot of great career journeys to look at. Uh, if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news, college baseball, spring training. Spring training is wrapping. Uh, this will be the last episode before opening day. Uh, drafts starting to heat up. Great stuff on the other pods. Feature projection with, uh, with Ben and Carlos. 90th percentile with Jeff. A lot of good stuff over at BA. Uh, with that, let's talk to Dallas Braden. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a 24th round pick of the A's in the 04 draft out of Texas Tech, former big league left hander Dallas Braden. Dallas, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. Excited, very excited about this. I am equally as excited. Uh, baseball, by the time this airs, baseball will almost be back. Uh, tell the folks, where can they catch you this season? Uh, well, you can catch me watching, calling the Oakland A's games with you folks, hopefully with you folks, uh, that, that's where I'm going to be spending my season. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it'll be my first full season in the booth from start to finish. So I'm very excited about having that much baseball at my disposal, at my fingertips. But uh, that's where you're going to catch me all summer long, in a ballpark near you. I mean, that's the best place to be. I think we're all very, very ready for, for baseball to get back, especially after uh, after this offseason, which oh. was objective, objectively terrible. Oh. Let's uh, let's dive in. A uh, question I start everyone off with. When did you first realize you had a future at the next level of baseball, whether that be college or pro ball? Um, well, I, I think it became realistic to me when I got drafted. And I was drafted <laughs> for the first time 
out of high school in the 46th round by the Atlanta Braves. 46, 47th round. I don't even remember. It's it's that that how that's how high it was. Um, but it was it was then where I started to realize like, okay, if there's a major league organization taking note right now, showing even this mild level of interest, then you need to start paying attention to this as well. So for, for me, the mindset was just, hey, can I graduate high school, please? And that happened. And I was playing baseball at the same time. And fortunately, that kind of fell into place and I got that opportunity. So that's when I would say it was like, hey, man, um, you need to clean some stuff up because this is real. This isn't just Legion ball anymore. This isn't just jumping on a travel team. No, 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 no. Like this is this this can be a career path. What was your relationship to baseball before you got drafted and before things got real? I think a, a lot of what you went through in high school with your mom passing away, it's pretty well documented. Where did baseball fit into your life as, as far as when your life takes that turn before it becomes something of, hey, this could be a career? Well, for, for me, I mean, it, it's kind of like a double-edged sword on, on one side of that blade. I had everything cutting nicely my way meaning i was having success when i was playing the game of baseball so you know i I didn't play baseball my my freshman year of high school i didn't play baseball my junior year of high school i only played two years so my sophomore year baseball was fantastic loved every minute of it and then my junior year baseball became rightfully so that carrot that was dangled in front of me to try to get me to pay attention to the areas in my life that I needed to pay attention to. And I just didn't, I I couldn't put it together. And so I cheated myself out of being able to continue to fall in love with the game of baseball. And then my senior year, it became a, a vehicle and an instrument for me to really try to take advantage of the sacrifices that had already been made for me by my mother and by my grandmother, and as you mentioned, my mother, you know, ailing with uh, with cancer, my senior year of high school, passed away my senior year. So it became a very real um, sanctuary for me, being at the ballpark, because she was the one who was taking me to the ballpark when I was a little kid. Before I was even old enough to play, she was taking me to the Little League Diamond with her friends who had kids that were playing, and I was just, I was around it. So that's, that's what the diamond represents to me and what it represented to me then was that, that sanctuary. Why, uh, why Juco? Why American river? Um, if you get drafted in the 46th round, I imagine there's some interest there from, from other places. What made Juco the route for you? That's the thing, bro. There was no interest. Phone was not ringing. Like not even was it the classroom stuff or just no one had seen you. I, I, I was probably a combination of both classroom stuff and you know I'm, I'm in stockton california but that's the thing is you know we had dudes that like you know we had a guy named joe hernandez who was blowing 93 94 from the left side at another high school across town but him and i like similar situation just you know kind of being knuckleheads um i mean i played against a dude a, a buddy of mine nick pesco who was coming out of uh school in lodi throwing 97 from the right side my best friend in high school was 92-93 from the right side. He was drafted in the 32nd round by the Atlanta Braves. So there were eyeballs, but I was 5'9", 140 pounds, 
Like I was not physically mature. The classroom stuff reflected that I wasn't mentally mature at that point or didn't, didn't prioritize correctly. So junior college just became the obvious route for me because I wasn't in a position to, to pay, to take tests, to get me to a state school. Again, the grades were not getting me into a school period anyway. Um, so junior college, like my grandmother and I just showed up on the doorstep of American River because we wanted to get me out of Stockton, California, where I, where I grew up. I couldn't be there anymore. I had to get away from that scene. And so that's what moving to Sacramento and American River represented was just that change of scene. One of the things I kind of lamented about my first fall in college being at a four-year school was that it, the baseball was like not a lot. It's just practices and workouts, and the season feels 100 years away. You've done both. You've done fall at a four-year school. You've done fall in junior college. In JUCO, you kind of hit the ground running, get a lot of games in the fall. Is is JUCO fall unequivocally better than four-year fall? I don't think there's really a question. Like when you're talking about what you want to do, you want to play ball. You want to get reps in. And if we're talking about playing 18 inning double headers, like on the weekend, you know what I mean? Two days in a row, that's against another team. Not to mention your 14 inning inner squads that you're going to have, your 12 inning. Like we didn't play nine innings. Like that, if we played nine innings, is because we were in a hurry or we had somewhere to go. Like coach had something to do, which was never. So we never played a nine inning ball game. And the other thing, is we, we had the ability to, to, I mean, we had access to the shed. Like we didn't have a clubhouse. I didn't have, like I was getting changed in my car out in the parking lot. Like we didn't have anywhere to keep our stuff. So the only things that we had were nets and tees and, and that kind of stuff that was stored away. So we get to, we get to school and get out of class, show up. And I mean, it didn't matter what time of the year it was. You were on the baseball field, period. You were in the cage, you were on the field, you were doing something baseball related every single day. Like, not a question. Is Juco lived in the moment, or were you kind of looking in the back of your mind like this is a springboard, worried about where you're going to go next? Or is it something that you can enjoy in the moment and, and take in that baseball? It, it's something that you can definitely enjoy in the moment, but for me, it was also an acknowledgement that this is not a, and, and that's the thing is, I understand the term springboard, but I have said time and time again, junior college is not a stepping stone. It can be a launching pad if you understand what it can do for you, if you understand what it can represent. And that's a combination of academically and athletically. If you can find the balance and you can understand what you need to get done here, if it's a junior college, that can get you to where you want to be, which might be a four-year before you get to ultimately where you want to be, which is a professional level, well, then you need to understand the mechanics that are going to go into that, what you have to do academically to get yourself in a spot to be able to go into that four-year. Or if you're like, look, I'm just trying to go to junior college so I can get looks early because there's nothing that tells me I can't go if they don't fall in love with me tomorrow. And if you understand that, and if you're kind of like I was, where like the, the plan B is not having a plan B, be motivated enough to sell out and commit to what you're doing. And while I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone, that's just, those are the cards I was dealt. Those are the cards I dealt myself. And those are the cards that I, I was playing. What did you pick up while you were at American river that made you go from a guy who only had one place to play to a weekend guy in the big 12, two years later? 
three years later? Uh, I was a, um, like it, it was accountability. It was accountability. That's the only way that I was going to learn how to take care of business on the field, how to take care of business in the classroom, knowing that the next step that I was more than likely going to be taking was to a four year. That, that was it. Like my coach would show up in the morning. I had to go to weights at, we had like five o'clock weights and I'd be, I'd be in the parking lot asleep in my truck at like four 30 in the morning. Cause I had an hour and a half drive from where I lived just to go to junior college. So I'm getting up at like, I'm not getting, I'm leaving at like three o'clock in the morning to get to a five o'clock wait session. And I fall asleep in my car sometimes. And my coach would see me driving in, but he wouldn't come wake me up because just, just getting there isn't showing up. And that message was delivered loud and clear because I probably fell asleep in my car three times, you know, early first dude there, but not on the blacktop with jump rope in hand, like running like a moron with my jump rope and, you know, stuff all over the place. Like, ah, what am I doing? So the accountability was, was the biggest thing that helped me get from where I was at the junior college level to being able to transform into what I was starting to turn into. And then how did you wind up in Lubbock, Texas? <laughs> um, you know, we have this, uh, we have this fall star classic in, in Northern California, where if you're an all American, your freshman year, uh, you play against all the other all Americans. And I pitched that day. I, I, I pitched well, um, you face six hitters, no matter what. So um, I think after that day, I was offered a scholarship, but it was like, yo, I'm not division one eligible. So like, you got to hang with me here. And if that's the case, well, you know, I'll be your dude, but I've got some things that I have to take care of here. Again, academics having circled back, you know, rearing their ugly head. So I was able to kind of weave my way through that, take care of business and said, Hey, I'm D1 eligible. What do you got? And they said, we got a scholarship. Let's roll. You roll out to Texas Tech. What was the the well-funded big D1 school thing that made you open your eyes that first of all? What was the, oh, we're rich, rich here thing? Well, you got an indoor, like a massive indoor workout facility, like dedicated, like, like this is ours, the baseball players. And then this is the football players. And this is for the basketball players. And, and it's just like, oh, we got an indoor track, like two levels, like it's called the bubble. And I mean, things have progressed significantly since I was there, but um, like, I mean, especially coming from where I came from, like everything was, was big league, like, you know, the dining hall and the fact that, you know, people were paying for you to eat. And like, that was just mind blowing to me. Like, like, man, they're just whipping out this kind of food for everybody here. Like, this is, this is fabulous. This is great. Um and then, you know, you walk into the locker room and it's beautiful. Like I, like I said, I had never had a locker room experience in my life. So rolling from getting dressed in the parking lot in my car to like having my own locker and laundry being done and all like, it was just like, wow, this is, this is insane. All the clothes, all the gear. Like it was, it was incredible. Laundry being done. That's, that's big league. Yeah. Um, so the fall, like we kind of talked about in, in four year is, is just prep for the season, just figuring that stuff out for you. You already know how to pitch in college. You've, you've pitched in junior college for two years, but you're, you're battling for the first time, the West Texas wind, how much trial and error is there in, in that ballpark when it's swirling? Cause there's sometimes there are days where your normal stuff just does not work. 
no, it, figure other things out. It, do, it doesn't matter. But for me, what was great is being a left-hander and in that ballpark, you can get, you get a strong, strong from right field to left field breeze. And I was able to just try to pound guys in. And if they're going to square a fastball up in, it was more than likely going to be pulled foul, which more than okay with. And then because that wind was blowing across for me, turning that ball over, it was almost like that, that changeup was hitting a sheet of wind and the screwball was just, you know, hitting, hitting a sheet and I could watch that ball just die. But it was very important to make sure that I started that thing in the right spot. Otherwise, if it's not down enough and not where it needs to be, it was just going to hang. It was just going to get caught up in the wind like a feather and just get waylaid. Because, I mean, I've seen some balls go out of that ball. I feel like I gave up a home run every game I pitched, if I'm being totally honest. <laughs> like, I'm sure the numbers will reflect that. Every game I pitched a Tech, I promise you, I probably gave up a home. I want to talk about that screwball because all the reporting says you scrapped it after 06, after you hurt your arm. But the big difference with it being a lefty and rolling off that changeup and rolling off that screwball, what are the differences and kind of the mechanics of that? And how did you, how did you mix and match those? Uh, for me, it was grip of the baseball. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking around. I don't know if I have a baseball up here in my office or not. Um, but it was, yeah, it was gripping the ball. Cause you grip a changeup, you know, traditionally with a, like I had a circle grip and from there I would just, use two fingers to get on the side of the baseball here. You know what? I got a ball. So that's how I would grip my four seam changeup pinky up on that seam thumb under, depending on what kind of movement I would move it around. But then the screwball go right to this and I'm throwing it. Now I'm throwing it off the inside of my middle finger and I'm pulling down with the inside of my index finger. So I'm, throwing the front of the ball, the top of the ball, and I'm pulling down on the inside bottom part of the ball. So, so you were able to get significantly different action on both of those? Oh, big time. Because again, using the thumb and the idea of a rudder, meaning the, the more north and south I get or the farther underneath I get under the baseball here, I'm really killing speed as opposed to trying to create movement like east to west. But as soon as I start to move that thumb up on the inside part of the baseball, now I'm starting to generate more east to west movement. And I mean, even if you want to get crazy, because like like we see, um, uh, who is it? Uh, oh, my God, the righty for Chicago, Hendricks, right? Uh, Kyle Hendricks, he, he'll cut the changeup. And so there's a lot of different action you can get just with, you know, a slight finger adjustment and a slight thumb adjustment. Mm hmm. Interesting. Very, I, I, I appreciate that tutorial. That was exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, so that, that Texas tech team picks seventh in the big 12 coaches poll heading into that year mentality. It's not how it ends up is the mentality for a team like that. Is it like, we're going to surprise people or we should be the damn favorites. Like, will like if that makes sense, you know, like will we will prove you wrong versus, Oh, they'll just find out like what, what's the mentality when you are picked almost DFL. Um, well, frankly, I didn't really pay attention to any of that stuff. Um, because being a Juco bandit, you're just kind of coming into a situation where you didn't spend freshman year, sophomore year, junior year with these guys. Like that's not the vibe. Sure. You spend all fall and you know what you got. You, you have a pretty good feel for who you are as a club, but I didn't know who anybody was at 
UT, like, you know, at Texas, I didn't know who anybody was at A&M or Baylor or whatever, just like none of those people had any clue who I was. So I, I wasn't really caught up in that. But what I did know is there were a lot of our guys that were projected to be drafted. And that for me was like another kind of like an aha thing. Like, wow, damn, we got a lot of these dudes who are projected to like go play pro baseball after this. Like we're probably going to be pretty good. Right. We're probably going to be pretty good. So that was, that was my, like, that was my feeling on the whole thing was if this is who we are and I see who we are, like, yeah, I'm, I'm watching BP. I'm watching our guys in the bullpen. Like I, I feel like we can compete here. I just didn't know what was on the other side of the diamond in these other clubhouses. Once you slotted into that rotation, how, how long until you started thinking like, Oh, I'm going to be one of these drafted guys. How long did you start until you heard from scouts? Like that, that honestly was never a thought in my mind. And, and it wasn't a thought in my mind because I'm a big, like, let's not put the cart before the horse guy. Like it's good to have goals and it's great to be motivated intrinsically. But the minute that you start thinking about stuff like that, you, your mentality could possibly change. You could start to maybe feel entitled. And I never, ever wanted to feel like I should be getting this player index card from this scout today. I should be talking to these guys after the tournament. Why are they not coming up to me? I never wanted to have any of that. I was always a big, like, let me compete. Let that speak for itself. Because at the end of it all, if what I'm hearing is true, they want guys who know how to pitch. They want guys that can get outs. I can do that. And if I do that, then I should be okay. Walk me through that draft experience after your junior year. Well, that, that was, I mean, that was nuts. Like I'm laying, I, I remember laying in bed, like phone rings, no idea who it is. Hey, this is Blake Davis with the A's, blah, blah, blah. And I just hang up. I'm like, what? You know, move on. I had, I had no idea. I thought it was a joke. I had no idea what was going on. It was in the morning. Calls again. I do the same thing. So finally, the third time, he's like, hey, wait, do not hang up. You're not. Hey, we're thinking about taking you in, in like the like the eighth round, ninth round. What do you think, Bubble? And I was like, Oh yeah, great, like awesome, cool. Uh, okay, <laughs> well that didn't happen. Get a call back later. Hey, we're thinking about you in like the thirteenth round. Blah blah blah. Fantastic, man. Just I don't know how any of this works. I don't have an agent. Like just call me, call me when you think it's good. And in between that day and the second day, I had acquired an agent because it was apparent that I was going to get drafted. And I had nobody to talk to, nobody to represent me, nobody, nothing. So I do get an agent, uh, get a call back the next day. Hey, we're thinking about taking you like the 20th, whatever. Like, yeah, cool. That doesn't happen. So they call back and they're like, hey, um, when, when do you think you would turn around and go back to school? And I was like, dude, I don't know. Uh, and then I thought to myself, like, my buddy Manny Park, left-handed stud, just got drafted last year out of American River, where we were at, or the year before, out of American River. And he signed in the 24th round. Dude made $1.25 million, like the most lucrative draft and follow signing in the history of draft and follow. And I wasn't thinking that I was going to get a million dollars by any stretch. Let's let's not get that twisted. But I was like, I don't know, 24th round? And they're like, cool. And they call back like three hours later. Hey, so we took you in the 24th round. Oh, and I was like, all right, fantastic. Let's go play baseball. So my draft experience was just very, very uh, anticlimactic, I guess you could say. So how much less did they offer you than Manny Parra's 1.25? I got paid $15,000 to go play, which is great because it started, I believe, at $20,000. 
And then the agent I had at the time was like, I think we can get more. And I was like, I don't think you can. And I frankly <laughs> am not interested. Like, just do you understand what they're trying to do? They're trying to pay me to go play baseball. Do you have any idea like what I've gone through to get to this point? Like, I don't No, 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 absolutely. I could. Well, that didn't work out. And I got a call from the scout who was like, Hey, just want to let you know your agent is like, he's, he's really pushing the envelope here. And I don't know you're in a power position. And I don't know if, if our guy makes another phone call that it's going to work out better for you. So are you trying to tell me that the agent that you signed spur of the moment in the middle of the draft and you guys weren't on the same page? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you that he negotiated our way out of about five more thousand dollars. Awesome. Uh, incredible. <laughs> incredible negotiating. It sounds like a, he sounds like a succession cast member. <laughs> so you, you start out, start out, you head out to minor league ball. What did you think your ticket to the big league was? Like, what was, did you put an ETA on yourself? Did you have any idea what kind of guy you could be at the big leagues? Like, how prepared were you for life in the minor leagues? Uh, oh, I was very prepared, very equipped already for, for what the minor leagues was going to offer me. Um, but I had no intention on staying in the minor leagues. Like, that was not my, like, I wasn't there to make friends. Like, you know, I, I wasn't there to, like, no, I was there to, try to take care of business to handle business as quickly as possible. Like when I, when I got on the mound at the pro level, I wanted to punch everyone out. I wanted to embarrass people. I didn't want it to be a four or five pitch at bat. I wanted it to be in three pitches, get them the, out of there, just get them out of there. And that was my mentality is I'm watching all these other dudes around me, not give a damn. And if that's how it has to be, that's fine. <clears throat> it's not really the guy I like to be. Like, I like to be the teammate. I like to be the, you know, the rah-rah. Like, I, I love to be that dude because I know what energy and chemistry can do for a club. Um, but it became very apparent very quickly that this isn't about being a club. We're not a team. This is a collection of dudes who are looking to bite the other's arm off if it means getting closer to that proverbial nipple, if you will. Like I, I, I got to get fed straight up and I got, I got a grandma to feed. Being the, being the raw, raw guy. And that's whole, the whole thing. You, you've made life after baseball great for yourself because of personality. You are a, you know, you are a baseball personality. You're staring at me with this grizzly Adams beard right now. Like you got a lot of life in you when, when every outing is a job audition. And the whole purpose of pro baseball or minor league baseball is impressing your employers. So they will eventually give you this great promotion that you need. It's like you're a, it's like you're a temp worker every day until you get the corner office. How much personality, how much can you be yourself in the minor leagues when you, especially when you are a 24th round draft pick, when they did not dump $3 million into you? It's a, it's a limited window. You have a short, short leash and one of the best things that was ever said to me was by a teammate of mine that I played college ball with, uh, summer ball with. And he was like, he, he told me, he said, you are the most colorful dude I've ever met. And he said, I really hope you get to the big leagues because if you don't, unfortunately, you're just going to be a clown. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think of you as a clown. Like, I love you. But he said, you're colorful. The difference between being colorful and being a clown is getting to that level. And like, it's, it's true. Like it's literally the fungus on your shower shoes thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. In the show, they'll think you're colorful. Yes, yes. And not here. They're, you're just disgusting. It, 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 but it, that was, yeah, that, I mean, that, that saying or that, that conversation just really, really resonated with me big time because I knew that I wanted to win and I knew that I wanted to get to the big leagues. And the individual performance is what obviously became the focus of of your career once you get to the pro level so for me having been raised an only child having lost my mom like like not having much or not having many people around and and being detached and being able to just focus like that wasn't going to be difficult for me at all your first full season they send you to your hometown of stockton has anyone ever been happier to break camp and go to high a than you nope not even close i lived the life man like uh i lived in my hometown in stockton california in a ball double a midland texas i went to texas tech just down the road hour and a half triple a sacramento which is 45 minutes from my hometown of stockton which is also where i went to junior college then the big leagues are spent in Oakland, California, about an hour away from Stockton, California, which is where I lived when I played in the big leagues. So the only place I didn't live in Stockton, California was when I played in double A. That's the only time I didn't live in Stockton during my entire career. On the surface, that sounds great. Grandma can come watch you play. Friends can come watch you play. You're in an environment where you're comfortable. You can probably, you know, scrounge up a home cooked meal, which like guys living in, you know, Visalia, guys from Delaware living in Visalia cannot do that. Are there any negatives to spending so much time around your hometown or being that close in the minors or in the big leagues? Uh I could see how that might present some hurdles or bring up some old speed bumps that you would have to navigate over, around, whatever. But I had already become so focused, and this is so true. Um, the higher you get, the tighter your circle becomes. And that's just something that happens naturally because there's going to be folks who don't have your best interest at heart, who are going to be negative detractors. And you can't, you can't fly with all that added weight on your wings. You just can't do it. And so I had already understood that, you know, cutting the fat here, cutting the fat there, and keeping my circle tight was how I was going to continue to, to climb. So it never became an issue. It became a motivating factor for me because the friends that I had, the circle that I had, I wanted them to succeed as well. I wanted them to win. And I could see how my mentality was paying off. And while it might not be in the same field, you know, I was able to share a lot of the successes and also share a lot of the failures in terms of being sent down from Oakland to AAA. Like I'm still seeing my same buddies, right? They're just not asking for tickets to go to the Rivercats game. <laughs> That's just, you know, so, uh, but, but being around there, like for me, because because the city of Stockton had done so much for me in terms of creating the mindset necessary to survive in the world, I, I could never turn my back on that city. So it became, it became a part of how I was going to get to the big leagues, was being motivated 
by the blue collar folks and the blue collar mentality that stock in California is all about. Well, on that subject, the ports now have the, the Dallas Braden community service award given to the ports player who is most active in their community. Was that a conscious decision by you as soon as you got to Stockton was to, to give back, get involved in the community, just basically let this place know that you are, you know, you're born bred Stockton. It's, it's something that you're passionate about. You're a guy with a 209 tattoo on your chest. Yeah, no, straight up. Like that's, that's a, like you just, you, you dance with the one who brought you and, and there was no way that I could live at home during the season live at home during the off season and not do what I believe is my part to try to help people out, to try to help my community out. And you just try to make an impact where you can or where you, where you are passionate. And I just, I hate the idea and I hate seeing people feel like they, they can't survive or they can't provide for themselves, provide a meal. Like that's just, that's a tough spot to be man. And I don't want to see, that going on in the neighborhood that I'm living in, because I can do something about that. And if you can, why wouldn't you? Like it's, it's understanding that you are raising the quality of life around you, right? High tides raise all ships. And that's what I was trying to do is just raise the water level. Well, it seems like it seems like Stockton has embraced you just as much as you as uh, as you've embraced Stockton. But uh, flash forward 07, you've you've turned in some good years. You come back from an injury. You do not have to wait long into the 2007 season to get the call. Walk me through that first call. Yeah, pretty nuts, man. Um, and like you said, like I, you know, 05 was my first full season. I missed 06 after shoulder surgery. I, I think I pitched two games at the end of 06, and then 07. I start in double A, make my way to triple A. And by the end of April, I'm in the big leagues. And it was great because my, uh, the game that I pitched in triple A, I pitched against a buddy who had just got called up as well. He was the bullpen catcher in like low A and got called up to triple A to catch guy got hurt. And so it's his triple A debut. And I, I break his bat give up a knock to him, break his bat. And, you know, he's just wearing me out, running his mouth down the line the whole time. Um, I end up, I, I pitch well, um, but we lose the game. And our our closer at the time had bought me a case of beer, you know, just like, hey, welcome to the big leagues. Because he was, or not big leagues, welcome to AAA. He was a good buddy of mine before that. But also like, hey, my bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, we had a rule though, can't have any alcohol, you know, this is our manager's rule. No alcohol in the hotel room, blah, 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 blah. So I've got this case of beer. It's my first game in AAA. And I'm, I walk back to the hotel because I'm like, I, I'm not getting on the bus with this case of beer. Like, what am I going to do with this thing? So I actually stop at the front desk. And because my buddy who just got called up on the other team doesn't have a place to live, he's staying at that hotel as well. And I knew that. So I leave the beer for him. And we get done with the ball game the next day. We get back to Sacramento. So it's the day after and manager calls me in the office and he's like, Hey, Brayden, Tony DeFrancisco is, is who my, uh, my AAA manager was at the time. And, you know, Italian dude, awesome guy. And he's like, Hey, Brayden, come in. So I come into the office and he goes, you, uh, you got a drinking problem, Brayden? <laughs> 
said, no, Tony, you know, you know, I don't have a drinking problem. What do you got? And he said, I don't know, Brady. You know the rule. No beers on the road. No beers in your room. You bring a beer to this hotel, Brady? And I was like, Tony, I don't have a drinking problem. Tony, I told you I don't have a drinking problem. And I was like, look, that beer was, he goes, are you sure that wasn't for you, Brady? Because I can't, I can't send a guy with drinking problems to the big leagues. I, I can't, I can't do it, Brady. And I, I was like, Tony, I don't have a, what did you just say? <laughs> And he was like, yeah, you, you go to the big leagues, kid. Get out, get out of my face. And I, like, grabbed him and punched him in the chest, like, two or three times. And was like, Tony, don't mess with me. What are you? And he was like, yes, man. So it was, it was incredible. I walked outside, called my grandma, and kind of played a joke on her. I was like, hey, uh, I'm not going to be in Sacramento any longer. I got to go meet the team in Maryland. And she was like, Maryland? what the hell are, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I got to go to Baltimore. She was like, Baltimore, but that's where, and then I could hear it register and I could like, and then she started crying and then I started crying. I was like, Oh my God, here we go. I'm going to the big leagues. You walk into that. You kind of, you kind of split time as far as innings and innings in the minors innings in the big leagues that year, that Oakland rotation was very young. Like, and just the staff in general, aside from Alan Embry, who was a dinosaur compared to everyone yeah. else, everyone else is, is pretty young. Like, like Joe Blanton's anchoring that rotation. That dude was like 26 at the time. Where do you go for the breakdown of how to be a big leaguer? That's routine. That's figuring out how to go about your business on the road before games, where to stay, stuff like that. Like, who, who did you gravitate to? You know, who, who gives the pointers there? Well, there was, I mean, like you said, there was, it was a very young rotation, um, but an older veteran bullpen as well. So there were guys like, I talked to Kiko Calero a lot, uh, Jay Wittasek, Joe Kennedy, um, God rest his soul, um, Justin Dukeshire, you know, but coming into that rotation, you've got guys like Dan Herring, Joe B, and they were on an incredible run. And the last thing I wanted to do was jump in the middle of that and, and blow it. Right. So I, it, it was tough because those guys are still trying to find their way, so to speak. They're still trying to establish what makes them work. And you're not interested in bringing this young punk under your arm and, and trying to show him the ropes while you're trying to figure that out on a fly on, on your own. Because like you said, Joe B at all of 26 is the veteran of the staff. So who the hell is he looking at, right? He's trying to figure it out on his own too. So it was um, it was a, a sink or swim sort of environment early on. But I, I, I don't know that I would have it any other way because, again, I, I'm somebody who wants to feel like I've earned my place here before, before I have somebody kind of put their arm around me. You know, I, I want to show you that I'm worthy of you taking that time before you just take that time and feel like you may have wasted you're having in in that year in that 07 year your numbers at the higher levels of minors are great like it's like you've you've conquered that mountain the big leagues it's not going the same obviously hitters are better and stuff like that but where is your learning each start what is what is not working as well in the big leagues like where are you seeing the jumps that you need to make in order to have success there in that first year well dan heron pulled me aside and was like look you can clearly punch people out but what happens is you end up going four and two thirds because you're afraid of letting them put the ball in play. 
And with your stuff, you're not going to overpower anybody. So you got to get comfortable, you know, trying to get away from those extended at bats. And what I would start to notice is once I get to two strikes on guys, they knew what I was going to throw. And I'd be fortunate enough sometimes to get those swings, but because they know what's coming at that level and they've done their homework and they've seen the video and they know the tendencies, they're ready for it. And so now they're spoiling pitches instead of really me playing chess with them and not showing them the full hand of cards the first time through or even the second time through, really trying to establish certain things that are going to open up my game later down the road. So as that became apparent to me, like it was like this light bulb moment, like, oh, that's right. They watch video on you. You know what you should do? You should maybe take note of their tendencies and see how guys like you are disposing of them. So the day that the iPad came out, I went and bought two of them and, or excuse me, I bought three of them. And I told our video guy, put all of Jamie Moyer against our opponents on this one, put all of Mark Burley against our opponents on this one. And then this one is saved for me. So on that, on that subject, your video guy, there's a, there's a quote that I pulled from some reporting about your perfect game, which we'll get into. And he mentioned that usually before starts, you do a, a two hour study session. What is like, can you break down the ideal study session? That is more than I did for probably all of my college tests. Well, I would like, and, and it wasn't, it was really sort of a remedial session because day after my start, I'm spending a good chunk of time, maybe, I mean, probably a couple hours on the, my next opponent's first three hitters. And then the next day is spent on their next three hitters. And then day three is spent on the bottom third of the lineup. And then day four is the bench guys. And then day five is just that rundown remedial. And that's my way of getting it, you know, just creating that muscle memory of sequencing and taking note of what I've just seen going over my notes and just, you know, confirming that this is, this is my game plan. This is what I'm looking for. This is what's going to happen here. Why? Because you've, you, you know, this is what's going to happen here. So at that point, after you've settled into the big leagues, like you, you do a, a full season in the show, you're kind of established. Do you feel like mechanically with your stuff? Do you feel like I'm kind of set here? I know who I am. I've got this stuff. I'm maybe making tweaks or whatever. It's just all about getting smarter. Is that where most of the progression comes at that point? Yes, I would say so. And that's why like, I would love to have the technology at my disposal that these guys have today, because you can really learn a lot about yourself, not only from a how can I move more efficiently standpoint, but also quite literally the art form of watching the ball come out of your hand and learning how to manipulate the baseball and make it do different things. Because from there, if you understand the kind of movement you can generate and create, you understand what that does for your opponent visually. And now you combine that with your opponent, with your ability to execute with said velocity from there. If you're executing movement, executing location with desired velocity, you're rendering your opponent a non-factor. Like that guy doesn't matter at all. Like he's just some moron up there with a bat in his hand. He should probably have two or three based on the confidence I have in myself right now because of the homework I've done because of, who I am and what I know I can do. 
So when you have an understanding of that, as you can under, like as you can tell, the confidence is at an all time high, and you're just going out there, and it, you know that's the day off. Game day is your day off mentally because you can just boom, 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 you the hay is in the barn. So you get a couple established years in the big leagues. You submit yourself in the A's rotation, start putting up some good numbers. Let's get to the game that I think everyone on the you know listening to this episode has been waiting for. The day you told Alex Rodriguez to get the hell off your mound. <laughs> the only thing I want to ask is I am sure you run into him occasionally, media circles, whatever. Do you what are the, what are the conversations? Because one, he seems like j- just an interesting person. And just sure. how how many conversations have you had with uh, with our good friend, the owner of the T Wolves? Yeah, see, he doesn't seem that interesting to me. Um, but <laughs> I, I interesting I, can be in a bunch of different sure. in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, people can there's be just little. Yeah, there. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't have interaction with that guy. I I, I don't. I I've, I've seen him. I saw him out in public one time. My wife and I were we were at dinner for my birthday actually and like we, it was a sushi dinner a wonderful sushi dinner and i was getting after it just getting after it the sake was flowing and we get up to leave and we're walking through and i'm walking up the stairs and this like this dude like this hand comes out and, like grabs me and he's like he's like hey man like danny told me you might be here like it's your birthday happy birthday like hey uh just want to let you know you're, you're doing a great job, man. I watch you. And I like, while this is happening again, I've, I've had quite a few sockies and things I'm, are a little fuzzy like, at that point. Yeah. I'm just like, who is this? Oh, and I'm like, Oh, and as, as it registered, I go, Oh, this guy, I, I said <laughs> it just like that. Like, sorry if I can't use the F word, but that's what I said. And, <laughs> and it, like I said that out loud, like that's supposed to be an inside comment. And it didn't, it was outside, but I didn't, obviously I didn't care. And I was just like, you know, I listened to what he had to say and walked off. And my wife was like, who was that? Do you know that guy? And I like, in a, it was like, it was, it'd probably be a great episode of drunk history because I was trying <laughs> to explain to her like in detail what had happened, you know, like I'm trying to break down logistically, like where the mound is and why you don't do this and how he ended up there and, so my wife and everything about him and why right. people can think of him a certain way. <laughs> right. And my wife who bless her heart, like thought I was a golfer was like, <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. I don't understand any of that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. So that's, yeah. Th- but, but as far as other interactions, no, man, I'm not, uh, not interested. So a few weeks after that, how, how many times did you have, you had to pitch on mother's day? Um, I think, I think three times, three times. Yeah. And you, you admitted recently that that day you also joined the fraternity of, of famously hungover guys who have thrown a perfect game. You uh-huh. and you and our good friend cheeseburger Wells, <laughs> um, that, that start on that day is you talked about all this mental prep that you just did is that something that was still there for that game or is that a, I just, I just need to get through this. Yeah, no, you, you nailed it with that last part, man. You nailed it. Like I just need to get through this. And that's just because of what that day had represented. Like, you know, I, I say that my, my grandmother and I up until that day 
lived a calendar of 364 days because there's just that day, Mother's Day, that we silently acknowledged, but didn't celebrate, didn't anything, you know, like the heart just wasn't there. And it's brutal because my grandmother is, is a freaking angel and she deserves to be celebrated every day of her life. And it pains me to think that we were both in that rut, but understandably so. Um, so there was nothing normal about my day emotionally, preparation-wise. Um, the only thing that, that was similar to any other day like that was the, the care factor was just broken. Didn't exist on that day. Like you said, let's just get through this, whatever. You know, I showed up with, with very little time for me to get ready to be able to still go out and, and pitch and be a part of a, a, of a lineup. With most no hitters, perfect games, whatever, there's always there's always like a couple breaks. Yours is pretty notorious for being like fairly smooth sailing. You didn't need Dwayne Wise to pull a ball back at the oh. you know over the fence. You didn't need uh, you know a, a call to go your way, anything like that. It was it was almost a Maddox. It was it's 109 pitches. Was there any point before the ninth that your heart started like pounding? Like I'm about to I might lose this. No, no, no. Um, like quite the contrary. I remember punching out BJ Upton uh, to end the eighth inning, and it was like it was a fastball. And and again, like to my point of believing, like, look, I know what pitch I need to throw. I know what's going to happen if I execute it and put it where I want. Like the rest is history, right? So I I snuck a fastball inside, got him to swing through. And I remember like that being like the, like, yeah, this is, this is a done deal. Like this is a wrap. Like it's over. Like there's no chance this goes away now. And it's crazy that I would be thinking about that because I had never seen the ninth inning of a major league baseball game before as a pitcher. I had never thrown a complete game in the big leagues, never even been out for the ninth inning. I don't think so to feel that and have that confidence. Like the only reason I could have that confidence is because I was well aware of the situation and I knew like, I'm not getting pulled out of this game. <laughs> I feel like I've got the ninth inning here. So from, from there, it was just a matter of, and cause I remember when I acknowledged what was happening, when I figured it out, you know, I'm, it's easy for me to put zeros together. So I did that math very quickly and was like, no hits, no runs sick. I don't think I, and I remember saying like out loud, I was like, Oh damn, um don't baby it don't baby it let's go and from there it was just kind of like oh my god it was it was weird because i felt like i was playing with house money you know but it was like the sixth inning like you know you should feel that way how are you in the dugout you strike me as kind of a man of the people type guy when you pitch like not the i know because they're they're always the types who are the serious types who get in the corner of the dugout there's the guys who try to i always like i had to be talking i had to be talking to people because if not if i got silent i would psych myself out how were you usually in the dugout versus that day? So the day I pitched, I was, I was that, like that D bag, like, don't talk to me. But like, I, I wasn't, I didn't interact with, with people period. So when I got into the locker room, if you said hello to me, like on my way to the locker on the day that I pitched, you might get a, like a head nod or hand out, whatever. And I just kept it moving. Cause as soon as I get to my locker, boom, hood on and it's go to work time. 
And I, I was that way because every other day in between, like I said, I was, I wanted to be the best teammate I could be like, what do you need? You need a new pair of batting gloves up top. I got you. I'll go get it. You need a jacket. You need hand warmers. Who wants a protein shake? Like what's up? Like I, I was that dude. So you're essentially like a well-played clubby. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, because that was the best role that I could play on this team. Cause I was just very thankful for them to be giving me a roster spot. My Jersey still hung up in the locker every day. So as long as that was happening, how can I help you? And on my start day, I just knew that my team deserved to have the focus that I knew that I could bring. And I, I needed to do that on my start day. Cause I took that focus into my work, you know, during the week, but come game time when I'm a starting pitcher and I don't have anything to do today, I can be a teammate. That's, that's my job. Enduring image from the end of that game is you hugging your grandma on the field. How long until you guys got time, just, just the two of you in private to, to get to talk about what happened and kind of get to celebrate that moment together. Oh man. Uh, not long, honestly. Uh, or why, uh, excuse me. It, it was a while because from there, we hit the road and I mean, I think I had a day off. I don't know if we had a day off. I think it might've been, might've been a day off, but we were going to Texas. Um, and that was, that was how quickly like the wheels just kept turning. Um, I think it was after she went on like a little media tour and it was so cool because she was so excited about it. So pumped. grandma deserved that media. man. Oh dude, brother, like nobody else, man, like nobody else. So to hear her beam and, and to watch her soak every minute of it up. And like, it was just cool. Cause I was watching her get comfortable with how she was telling stories and, you know, and, but at the same time, like before she would start to do anything, she'd like look over at me and just be like, and she would just, you know, she would just pat her knees, like pat her hands, like, oh my God, this is, and it was just so cool because she got to talk about Mother's Day with a smile on her face. And it really felt like, like, that's why, man, like, if I have an ego about anything, I, I do feel like I'm magical in a sense that I was able to give my grandmother back that one day on the calendar that we were missing. What about for you? Is it is Mother's Day something that you guys celebrate together now? Yes. My grandmother's front door is 37 feet away from my front door. <laughs> we built her a place on our property. She's not going anywhere. And she spends every day with her great-granddaughters, with my wife. And to have the wife I have, who is the, the foundation of our family, next to my grandmother, who is responsible for everything that I've ever been able to do in my life, to have those two women together in my life is like, I'm, I'm the, the most spoiled man on the planet. And it's really not even close because I, I watch my wife with my children, with our children, with me. And I watch my grandmother and it's like, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it might sound cheesy, like they're not going to listen to this podcast as much as I want to tell you that they will. I don't know that they subscribe. I can work on that, but they, they make every day worth celebrating them. That is, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned you able to, you guys have, you know, piece of property, able to build grandma land, you know, 
uh, place on your land. You've been you've been working since you've left baseball, but the the salary of the year you threw the perfect game and put up a three five ERA was four hundred twenty thousand. Minimum's gone up a little bit, and thankfully because of the new CBA, a little bit. You'd provided five point four WAR to Oakland over the past two years, the previous two years. If you'd still had another year before arbitration, before you started having arm trouble, gone on to suffer the same kind of arm trouble, but not been able to hit arbitration, how much different do you think your life and transitioning post-baseball would have been if you hadn't been able to reach at least a little bit more financial security? I would be in the military. Not even a second thought. I would be in the military. Because that's and where I was headed. No beard. Yeah, that's, that's where I was headed before I got drafted. So... That would have been a, I don't want to say an easy transition, but that would have been the, no, this is what I go do. This is where I'm going. Because I knew like I, I, I wasn't a family man at the time. I wasn't interested in being a family man. I, you know, I, I wanted to live my life. I wanted things to happen. And so I wanted to make things happen. And that was where, that was where my mindset was before, baseball became the blessing that it became for me that the 2010 season essentially your last season last full season of the big leagues through 192 and two-thirds innings that would have been good for second in the AL in 2021 back then didn't even crack the top 10 I personally I would love to go back to the days of watching starters going deep in games and you know the hero performances and things like that I love that's fun in in 2010 were there times that you went out a little bit more sore than you should have stretched out deep into a game that maybe you should have, or was it, is it just, were you just built for that at that time? Was it just the mentality? Uh, that's just, yeah, that's, that's part of what you did. And like, trust me, there were times where like, I'd only have six innings under my belt and my arm was hanging. My arm was tired. And now that I think about it, you know, it's probably why it fell off at the end of that year. Um, and, but I, I'm like, yeah, no, like I, I want to roll back out there or it's that conversation's coming up in the fifth inning. Cause I've been laboring and you're starting to see the gun drop a little, right. My, my 89 going to 87 is something that you take note of. And when it goes down to 85, you start asking questions like, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Cause you're only going to have so many of these heaters that you can step on this next inning before you just are out there thumbing them and tricking them and trying to figure it out. But that's a mentality. And again, to your point about the rotation that I came into as a rookie, like these dudes are hogs. Those were absolute horses. So what, what, what was I going to do? I didn't want to be the pony in the stable. So that's the mentality that you try to adopt is I don't care how slight a frame I am, put all of the work that I can handle on me. Like, let's, let's go. Let's, let's make that happen. Was there anything mentally in your career that compared to the frustration of rehabbing and that uncertainty after your after you had that arm injury? You'd had the injury at at the bottom of the mountain early in your career, and now you've you've reached the pinnacle. You've established yourself, and then suddenly there's another one. Yeah, it, it's the feeling of uh, not being able to run fast enough in your dreams, right? You oh, just, that's so f- you can't move. You can't move like. You see where you got to go or where you're trying to go and and you know what that feeling is like. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, And and that's the frustrating part is when you put the work in that you feel like is supposed to render the result you're looking for and you get to the point. I mean, I was on the mound in the UCLA bullpen throwing. I was about a week and a half away, maybe two weeks away from 
having teams come out and watch me throw. We had a lot of teams lined up ready to come watch me throw a bullpen and on the mound in front of the UCLA pitching staff, my arm popped again. And I stepped off and was like, I don't know if that was bad or if that's just scar tissue. We're going to finish this bullpen and we're going to find out. And I got through the bullpen and I went home later that day and it just never stopped hurting. Woke up the next day. It was throbbing. Went out to the field, played catch. I think I threw two balls and said, that's all she wrote, man. I got to go get another picture. And sure enough, that was that. So the, as soon as you got that MRI and found out you got hurt again, was that, was that it? Uh, well, well, no, initially, like I, I was like, Oh, I can come back. I can do this. And as I started to do this and, and seeing the doctor, the doctor just kept telling me like, look, man, I told you once and I've told you twice. And now you're back again. I can't medically clear you to play baseball again, which means when a team asks for your physicals and asks for your, for your, for your file, like I'm not, I, I can't, my professional like status, I can't, my integrity is on the line here. I can't do that. And I was like, well, you know, explain to me, tell me why. And he said, because you, you already don't have a bicep tendon in your arm now. Um, the back of your shoulder looks like somebody drug a plastic bag over the teeth of a saw. He said, I went in there and tried to sew it together. And it was like trying to sew together wet napkins. <laughs> you have nothing left in there, my friend. You got nothing. So I was like, well, so what are you saying? <laughs> Does that mean that You saying there's a chance? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I spent the next few months trying to grind, trying to get back. But I mean, the same time that I threw a ball felt like it did back at UCLA. And I was like, yeah, this is, that's it, man. That's it. So you make your peace. Seems like he found success and happiness post playing. How long was the morning period? Um, not long because I was able to come to terms with the fact that I didn't, you know, uh, shout out. Tony D, my AAA manager. I didn't drink myself out of the game. Um, I was, I wasn't terrible. I didn't pitch my way out of the game. I didn't eat my way out of the game. I didn't, I didn't do this to myself in, in that regard. I didn't take it away from myself. And I, I think that's what guys want to go to bed with at night is that you've done everything you possibly can to explore all your options to, to do everything like short of trying to pitch right-handed I did all I could do and so like and, and, and knowing I was I was only getting better I was figuring it out and I was ready to take those next steps like that for me I, I it, it wasn't enough but I was okay with knowing that I had received such a benefit from the game of baseball, an opportunity to provide for my grandmother. And what could I be angry about? Like in the grand scheme of things, in, in, in the big picture, what am I pissed off about? Who am I mad at? Like why? And so it, it, it didn't take long for me to come to terms with the fact that this was a done deal. Question, last question I give everybody. If you could give yourself a pep talk at age 20 when you signed. What would that pep talk look like? Honestly, not much different than the pep talks I got from, from my mom um, and my grandmother early on in life. 
Like nobody's going to be here to hold your hand. If you want this, you understand what has to be done. And I can't want it more than you. Nobody's going to tie your shoes for you. So there's, if, if you can't get motivated about the opportunity in front of you, if you can't in your heart, inside, find the reason why you should be taking care of business, why you should be handling business, and why you should be doing what you need to be doing, if you can't find that inside, nobody's going to be able to light that fire for you. And that's, that's pretty much what that would look like. I got a quick rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. Yeah, man. Favorite minor league ballpark? Banner Island Ballpark, baby. Let's go. Shout out to Corpus Christi. Uh, Whataburger Field. There you go. Um, strictly because I think uh, Charlton Jimerson hit the farthest ball I've ever seen hit in baseball off a dear friend of mine that I promise you rolled to the ocean. <laughs> uh, favorite big league ballpark? Ooh. Anyway. That, that, that one wins a lot of these. A close, a close second, and I hate to say it, a close second is uh, the Giants ballpark in, oh. in San Francisco. I mean, Fenway, just because of the nostalgia, the ballpark in San Francisco has that now because of 10, 12, 14. Um, but what that ballpark meant when it was built, and I was a kid who grew up as a Giants fan, sorry, Ace fans that might hear this, but uh, that ballpark meant the world to me because again, the sanctuary going through the stuff I was going through in high school, my high school coach would take me to ball games just to kind of get me away from stuff. And like that ballpark will always hold a special place in my heart. And Barry was there. Oh, the house that Barry built, baby. The house oh, that yeah. built Barry. <laughs> Best hitter you ever faced. Ooh. I mean, each is a guy that I think about, um, Placido Polanco is a guy that I think about because he owned me. A lot of guys me. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the I think the correct and proper answer is Miguel Cabrera. Oh yeah, because that's just that's 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 one in a million talent, man. That that dude is an absolute freak. Think about last year, the dude inside and out a ball down and in, out to right center in a damn blizzard. Mm-hmm. You can't even track that ball coming in, let alone put the barrel on it where he did and shoot it out into a damn blizzard headwind. We're going to see some milestones this year too. He's got, he's got some stuff coming up. Uh, Best food city in the big leagues, New York. What is the Dallas Braden road trip? Not pitching the next day night out. Look like, Ooh, (laughs) we're going to watch the sunrise. (laughs) (laughs) I think that says enough right there. Last question. Everyone gets this one. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? A nightmare bus ride story? Nightmare bus ride story. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Texas League is Texas League is the worst. Texas League is brutal. Cal League, not, not great. But the Northwest League was atrocious. Especially when you played for the Vancouver Canadians like I did. We're talking a 16-hour bus ride from Canada to Boise, Idaho. Um, Yeah, not ideal. But let's just say that a teammate, a little fella, was able to fit up in the very back of the bus seat. Like where it's not even a seat. It's on top of the bus engine. And 
if you could get up there when it got cold at night, great, because it was warm. You didn't have to use a blanket or anything, but counterpoint, you're sleeping on hard steel. Um, but let's just say that uh, this, this individual is uh, really starting to enjoy himself all by himself with <laughs> just himself. If you uh, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, and and we obviously realize what's going on. So uh, because there are some folks who have some strong feelings about that, uh, that did not that did not end well. That was not a fun moment in time, especially on a bus. Uh, especially you know when there starts to, when, when grabbing starts to happen after that. Like yeah, it's it's just a yeah, not a good spot. Especially again, you're probably hour nine into this fourteen to sixteen hour bus ride. I thought we had heard everything on this show when it came to nightmare bus ride stories from the minor leagues. Should have known. Should have known. <laughs> Dallas Braden, that's all I got for you. Thanks so much for coming on from Phenom to the Farm. Anytime, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Had a blast. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Dallas Braden for stopping by telling us about his story. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate and leave a review if you're on Apple Podcast. Episodes of from Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday, so if you're subscribed, you get the next one in your feed. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus.